And our next scripture comes from James uh, 4, 1 to 12. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says without reason that the spirit that he caused to live in us envies intensely, but he gives us more grace? That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers, do not slander anyone. Do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? And then finally, um, our last scripture comes from uh, chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted. Your moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who are not opposing you. Amen. In two places here in the book of James, it looks like he's making subtle references to the story of Cain and Abel. In chapter 5, verse 4, it says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. First of all, what an incredibly vivid image. When you cheat a fellow brother or sister, their wages cry out against you to God. Your guilt will be judged. You're not just going to get away with it. It reminds me of the story of Macbeth, where his guilt over killing the king was never going to be washed away until the king was avenged. Lady Macbeth spends all her time trying to wash away the guilt from her hands, and it never goes away. Even if you manage to silence the people you cheat, what you cheated from them itself cries out against you to God. If you took one or two shortcuts financially, you won't just get away with it. Make it right today so it doesn't have to be made right tomorrow. Because tomorrow the punishment is far more severe. But second, you can hear that echo of the passage we just read from the story of Cain and Abel. When Cain kills Abel, God comes to talk to Cain. And just like his mother Eve, Cain thought he could tell a quick lie to get out of trouble. God asks Cain, where is your brother Abel? And Cain answers, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? 
At that point, God gets angry at him and says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Notice the parallels. In both James 5 and Genesis 4, it's a crime against your brother. In Genesis, your biological brother, and in James, your brother in Christ. In both cases, the person thinks they're going to get away with it. In James, because they live in luxury and security, and in Genesis, because Cain thought he could just lie to God. In both cases, the thing that was taken cries out to God for justice. In Genesis, Abel's blood, and in James, the money. And in case you missed the parallel to the story of Cain and Abel, James says in verse 6, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. It doesn't sound a lot like what it looks like to cheat someone out of money. Like, sure, cheating people is bad, but it's not the same as murder. But what James is doing is he's laying on this Cain and Abel parallel really thick so you don't miss it. Cheating your workers is like killing a righteous person that doesn't resist you, just like Cain killed the righteous Abel. In a sense, this is really encouraging, actually. Every day on the news, you hear about people who use some kind of fraud to steal money from people. And for every story that you hear about someone who got caught for it and went to jail, you see tons of people who are almost certainly guilty, but it can't quite be proven. And you think, man, this person did a terrible thing and defrauded tons of people of money, and they're just going to get away with it. We see it every day. So much corruption whether you're in government or in business or nonprofits or churches, you can probably think of an example right off the top of your head. It's such a disgusting sin to betray people and to betray their trust and take what's theirs. And it's even worse when you consider that so many of these people manage to escape and smear the people that accused them. Not only do they steal, but they destroy people's reputations. But we know that the wages that they stole from good people cry out to God, just like the blood of Abel cried out to God. And God cannot simply ignore it if, if, like the people they bribed do. And God is so powerful that he makes those petty, corrupt tyrants look pathetic. The whole world cries out to God for justice, and by the grace of God, we know it's coming. Now, it feels weird to look forward to the coming judgment of God against sin, right? But it's a well-precedented part of the Bible, that we forget a lot. In Revelation, the martyrs who were killed by unjust rulers for being Christian under God's throne cry out, How long, O Lord, until you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? We should hope that all people are saved, but we should also hope for the justice of God. Without it, the whole world is meaningless. If God does not judge sin, then people can do whatever evil they want and get away with it. And if that's the case, there doesn't really seem to be much of a real difference between evil and good. I watch football, and if you didn't know, there's a penalty called assisting the runner. You've probably never heard of it. <laughs> so basically, a big offensive lineman can't just help a running back move forward just by picking him up and shoving him forward. But the problem is that I have literally never seen a ref call that penalty. It's never happened. So for all intents and purposes, that rule doesn't exist. Players do it all the time. And the only reason why they would stop is if they received the judgment of a 10-yard penalty. God's justice makes life meaningful because it tells us what's right and what's wrong. And without that distinction, all there is is who's stronger and who's weaker, who's richer and who's poorer. Cain killed Abel, and that's okay because he overpowered him. But no, thank God, 
he will come to judge the world for its sin. And it's all, all, all that's especially important for the kinds of people who get cheated and stolen from and have nobody to turn to but God himself. It would be one thing to get cheated and to be able to sue and go to court and get help. It's a whole other thing to get cheated and the judge takes a bribe and you never have a chance in court. In that case, only God can judge. And he would be just as bad as the judge that takes a bribe if he didn't. But this passage also calls us to be aware, wary of God's justice for ourselves. We are just as tempted as all the rest of the human race to cheat each other financially. And we probably can get away with it. In fact, one of the main differences between regular people and people who steal millions of dollars through some shady dealings is that regular people just don't have those opportunities to steal. It's not always just because the people who do steal are worse people. It's that they're regular people who have had more opportunities to steal. So don't cheat anybody, even when it comes to small stuff. Because if you get in the habit of cheating people in small stuff, you might just get the opportunity to cheat people in big stuff. And if you're used to cheating people, you probably won't draw the line at a certain dollar amount. Whatever the case, the money you stole will cry out to God from the ground, just like the blood of Abel cried out to God. And there's no getting away with it. Next in chapter 4, verse 2, it says, You desire and you do not have, so you murder. Now, a lot of scholars have a hard time with this verse because it seems like a pretty extreme escalation. Like James is talking about how these people have a lot of really strong desires for stuff, and it jumps immediately to murder. In fact, a lot of scholars think that this is such a crazy jump that they think this couldn't actually be what James actually meant. Some of them think that the text must be wrong because of that, and so they propose a whole lot of different possibilities for what it actually says. But it makes a lot of sense if you just remember that James, as a good Jew, already had a narrative in his head for what it looks like to envy and desire, where it almost, almost where it leads quickly into murder. And that's the story of Cain and Abel, where Cain is jealous of Abel, and he kills him because he's stronger, and he's out of anger. When you remember that James already had the story in his head for chapters 5, verse 2, it seems likely that it was in his head a few verses earlier. So in this case, who for James was Cain, and who was Abel? Who was jealous, the rich or the poor? Now, you might be tempted to think that James was saying that the poor among them were the jealous ones. After all, it says, you desire and you do not have. Who is more likely to desire things? Well, surely the ones who don't have stuff. So the poor, right? But keep looking, and you'll see that one of the main problems with these people is that they're proud. It says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And in verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Very rarely will the Bible talk about the poor being proud. It's almost always something that's said about the rich. In fact, the word for humble in a lot of cases is used as a synonym for poor in the Bible. When it says, you desire and you do not have, in a lot of cases we assume that means that somebody is poor because they can't afford what they want. But I don't think James would have seen it that way. So in both places, James is making a reference back to the story of Cain and Abel, of how jealousy for one brother for another leads to murder. For whatever reason, God favored Abel over Cain and made Cain so angry that he killed him. Now, from that story, you might expect that the people who are most like Abel are the ones who are already rich. For whatever reason, they're blessed and chosen by God, so that should mean they have a lot of money and power and stuff. Meanwhile, you would expect that James would put the poor people in the position of Cain. They're lacking a lot of the things that they want, even some of the things they need. 
So it'd be hard for them not to look at rich people and be jealous. But actually, in both cases, James says the opposite of what you might expect. In both cases, he interprets the rich people in the church as Cain, the older brother who gets jealous of the younger brother and kills him, and the poor people in the church as Abel. It's really surprising, but it says something really profound about our human nature. It's a surprising thing, but more often than you might think, rich people are actually less generous with their money than poor people. Studies are basically inconclusive about whether poor people give away a higher percentage of their wealth than rich people. And that's especially weird because richer people tend to have a higher percentage of their wealth that's disposable and able to be given away. How could that be? Part of it might be that the poor understand the value of money much more. A few dollars might be the difference between eating dinner tonight and not. For the rich, on the other hand, money might just be part of a game. That cash is important because it makes the number in your bank account bigger. Believe me, I'm not casting stones here. Whenever I open my bank account, the first thing that I see is a line graph showing how my savings have changed over time. It feels really good to watch that line go up. And it has nothing to do with the actual value of that money most of the time. It hurts to watch that line go down. You can easily become a slave to that line, to making it go up. And eventually, like in this passage, even if you have everything you need, you end up getting envious of pe even of people who have less than you. You need to cheat the money out of those people who don't have so much so that you can make the line go up. The money isn't valuable for any other reason than because of the game. This passage is especially important for people like us who live in two of the wealthiest counties and the wealthiest country in the world. So James spends a lot of time in this passage talking about what not to do with money. Don't cheat people. Don't get jealous over it. Don't fight over it unnecessarily. Don't divide the church over it. Don't hoard it beyond what you need. But what should our attitude be towards money? What do we do with it? I think the most insightful thing that I've read about this comes from an Eastern Orthodox theologian named Alexander Schmemann. He said, humans by their nature are priests that turn temporary physical things into spiritual and eternal ones. In fact, humans are most humans when they're doing that. They're fulfilling their God-given job. Here's some examples. When you take a physical house and physical furniture and physical yarn and decorations and make a home out of it, you are turning physical, temporary things into eternal, spiritual ones. The main difference between a house and a home is a spiritual difference. A house is just a physical object. A home has been imbued with an incredible and sacred life. At Thanksgiving, when you take physical apples and physical turkey and physical cranberry sauce and turn it into a meal and to be shared with a whole bunch of people, you're turning temporary, physical things and his spiritual, eternal things. The feeling of love and thanksgiving and joy and fellowship around the table is an eternal, spiritual reality which is made out of temporary and physical things. The whole is way greater than the sum of its parts. I mean, have you ever cooked a meal for people and had a great time and thought, wow, it's so incredible how taking something so simple like slicing some apples and baking bread turned it into this great meal that we all shared together. That's what it's like to turn physical things into spiritual ones. And that's what it looks like to use our money as Christians in God's kingdom. 
We take this physical money that required our physical labor, and we use it to create spiritual realities that bear witness to God's eternal kingdom. When you work hard all day long to provide for your family, you're taking your own physical labor and turning it into an act of love and devotion for the people you care about. When you feed the hungry, you're taking some physical money and physical food and turning it into an act that cares for the people that need it. You're showing love to someone who doesn't receive a whole lot of love. And you're showing the beginning of what it looks like when Jesus comes again and sets up his kingdom here on earth where no one is cold or hungry anymore. On the other hand, you can take your money and make absolutely certain that it always remains a purely physical object. By lying or cheating, you empty yourself of the power to use the money to create spiritual realities. A wonderful feast around the table made out of stolen money will always be tainted. You can hoard your money so that it sits in the bank and never use it generously to bless the world. So then it will always remain a physical object. So this is how we can see our money. It is the raw material that we use to show the spiritual reality of God's coming kingdom. When we eat and drink together, it has the spiritual reality that is a shadow of the eternal feast that we will all experience together when Jesus comes again. When we care for one another, it shows the spiritual reality that is a shadow of Jesus' kingdom, where no one will go hungry anymore. When we give gifts at Christmas, it will show the spiritual reality that is a shadow of the generosity that we will all live together in the, in the new heavens and the new earth. So we should not settle for merely empty physical things that rot and spoil. And we shouldn't get this raw material of money dishonestly because it spoils the gift. But we should lay up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves can never break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's pray. God, give us the perspective we need to see our money the way that you see it, as a way to draw closer to you and to love your kingdom. Help us to withstand the temptation to seek it dishonestly, knowing that we, you will righteously judge every little action. And give us grace that we may be forgiven for all our failings. Amen.